Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, and thank you to our worship team for that awesome rendition of that virtual song, and to our kids uh, and Katie and all that you did to pull that video together. That was cool. Thank you for doing that. And thank you to Pastor Kevin and your family for the communion time. I hope that was a special time for you uh, this morning on Easter to celebrate in a unique way. And this is a unique time, isn't it? For the first time in the history of Grace Point Church, 285 years, we're meeting fully online. Thank you for adjusting with us and meeting with us this morning. It really is an honor to be with you on this special day. Um, on this day, especially on Easter, I want to do something special with you. I want to take you uh, on a journey, a journey back in time, and a, and a journey with one of the closest followers of Jesus. A journey with someone who was uh, both bold and brash and also uh, fearful um, and conflicted at the same time. It's a journey that I want to take you on through a couple of um, uh, panels of the life of this man who followed Jesus. And I want to kind of invite you to, to dream a little bit with me, to kind of daydream back in time to what this might have felt like to be with Jesus and to walk with him during this period of history. And so the man that I want to focus on this morning is actually Peter, who was an incredibly close follower of Jesus. And I want to pick up the story, um, the night actually that Jesus was betrayed. And after they uh, took um, what we call the Last Supper, they shared in communion together um, as disciples, basically, Jesus walked away from the upper room where they were meeting and, and over to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, now it's late at night and the, the crickets are out. Uh, you can hear um, all of the night sounds. There's a little bit of a night quiet, but a, an alive kind of sound of the little uh, the critters going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they are walking through the garden, basically in that evening, Judas, who had already left the upper room to betray Jesus, shows up with a, a host of Roman soldiers. And it's in that moment where Jesus is about to be betrayed by, a, by a, a kiss from Judas. And Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, decides that he's going to fight back. And he takes a sword out and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the Roman guard there and, and um, you know, begins to try to fight back. And Jesus says, Peter, 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 put your sword away, man. This isn't what I'm about. This is not the way the kingdom of God is going to come to bear. Relax. And he puts the guy's ear back on. Can you imagine how conflicted Peter would be in the, the chaos of that night, the, the busyness of that moment, the surprise of it, the emotion of it, just all of what's going on inside of him and Jesus being taken away by these Roman soldiers that night after they shared just such an intimate moment of communion together. Well, Peter and a couple other disciples trail pretty far behind Jesus and they, they end up going to the house, the home of Caiaphas. Uh, Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. And if you can again get your, get your imaginary mind on for a minute with me, um, Caiaphas's home was not just a, a home like mine or yours, but he had a, a pretty elaborate home for the day and he needed to. He hosted um, all kinds of religious leaders and people of influence. And Caiaphas's home had an uh, outer um, yard area and then an inner courtyard and then an inner place where he would meet with people and, and live. And this night, again, it's now nighttime, somewhere around getting, getting late in the night. I don't know what time exactly, but it's dark and, and it's cold. And, and Peter gets to Caiaphas' house where Jesus has been ushered in to that 
inner place inside of Caiaphas's home. And Peter is gathering outside, and actually gathering outside in that outer courtyard with um, you know, are, are all kinds of people. In fact, there's slaves, servants of Caiaphas's home. There's officials who didn't quite get the, the backstage pass into Caiaphas's home. And then there's Peter. And they're in that inner courtyard, and they're gathering around a fire. So they're having a, a, a time just to be warm from the chill of the night. And in that space, Peter is is asked by the, the the people who were there, the officials, and even a young girl. He's asked a question three times and kind of told something three times, and he's told in that space, hey, aren't you one of them? Aren't you one of the disciples? Aren't you someone who is following Jesus? Like, wait a minute, I think I know your, your accent. I think I know your dialect. You, you're from Galilee, aren't you? You're one of his followers, aren't you? And if you know the story three times, three times, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. What's interesting is to pick up the way Luke tells this story and what happens on the third time. In Luke chapter 22, here's what we read. Luke chapter 22, verse 60. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, the rooster crowing was because Jesus had told um, Peter that by the time the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And it's on the rooster crowing that it's almost as if time stood still. It's almost like the movie hit pause and, and action, live action was, was just frozen in time for a minute. And the angle of the camera moves through the crowd and you can look inside Caiaphas' home and see Jesus. And you can see Peter. You can see the, the color go from his face. You can see Jesus inside who hears the rooster. Peter outside hears the rooster. Jesus looks outside. Here's what Luke says, verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Right in the moment of all this chaos, of being questioned about who he was as the Messiah, of being under arrest, and Peter out in the courtyard, Jesus and Peter lock eyes right after the rooster crows. This moment, this moment, that they capture together. And here's what happens next. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And then he went outside. Peter went outside. He went outside the courtyard, went outside that, that wall. And, and Luke tells us, and he wept bitterly. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever locked eyes with shame and disappointment? Have you ever locked eyes with regret? Have you ever had that moment where you all of a sudden realize, shoot, I have let this person down. I've let my mom down, my dad down, I've let my boss down, my teacher down, maybe worst of all, I've let myself down. Have you ever locked eyes with regret? I have. Here's what I think about regret. I think that Regret is actually, um, it can build, it can build like a house that can host shame for a lifetime. That regret that isn't processed can build a little home inside your heart and mine where shame can live and develop. And it can create within us a, an incredibly unhealthy um, engine for our daily decisions, for our seeing of the world and even our seeing of God. If you've ever locked eyes with disappointment or regret or shame before, you know exactly what this is like. 
Have you ever woken up in the morning and looked in the mirror and locked eyes with a regret? You wish you didn't weigh as much. You wish that you would have made a different decision yesterday with your employees. You wish that you would have not had that thought life problem of yesterday. You wish that the struggle with pornography were gone. You wish that things were different with your family and the way that you talk about them. You wish that you wouldn't have let down your parents or wouldn't have let their voice into your heart so much. You wish, maybe you wish, that you could just get on top of what has really beaten you down for so long, that you wish you could be a more confident person. You wish that you could be someone who could change your past. Have you ever locked eyes with disappointment, regret, and shame? Because in this moment, Peter has. He looks at his failure, he looks at his weakness, and he is locked into the eyes of Jesus the Messiah. What a person to disappoint. And Peter has, straight up. Now, can you imagine what would happen next? If you know the story about Jesus, you know that he was then um, convicted in this crazy court. He was actually sentenced to death and died on the cross. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Peter to look at Jesus on the cross and, and, and live with the regret that one of the last moments that he shared with Jesus was a time where he betrayed him, where he looked him in the eyes, and he knew and Jesus knew he had let him down. Can you imagine the shame that would be to live with that? Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. On this Easter Sunday, we don't celebrate the death of Jesus, although we recognize it had to happen so that we can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And later on in Luke, just a chapter later in Luke chapter 23, excuse me, Luke chapter 24, we read about what happens when Peter comes to the tomb. Here's my second scene as we look into Peter's life. Look at verse 9 of chapter 24. When they came back from the tomb, that is the women who found Jesus' empty tomb first, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman, the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They were so excited about what could be. Verse 12. Peter, however, he got up and ran to the tomb. Do you think his regret may have anything to do with that fervor? Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away. And here's what Luke says. Wondering to himself what had happened wondering to himself what had happened. It's almost like Peter's thinking, what could be? Like, I, I got, is it possible that Jesus is alive? Now, he doesn't say that. I think he's just confused, and he's wondering. I wonder if he's hoping that there could be a way for him to deal with the regret and pain and shame of his past. And I don't know if some of you are there this morning. I don't know if some of you are listening this morning or listening later online to this and thinking, and maybe you're in the same boat that Peter is in, right there in the tomb. Maybe that's your stage of life right now, where you're saying, you know what, I don't know for sure if Jesus is alive or not, but what I do know is I have regret, I have pain, I have shame that I hope no one really finds out about. And I'm looking at the empty tomb and I'm just wondering, could it be? And could there be something here? 
Peter's story goes on. When he finally meets Jesus, it's an incredible moment, and after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus meets with actually hundreds of people, and the story about Jesus' resurrection is an incredible story, one that is beyond the scope of what I can tell fully this morning. But what I find very interesting is how Peter interacts with Jesus later. In John chapter 21, excuse me, John chapter 21, verse 15, we hear, we read a story about how Jesus re-engages Peter after he is resurrected. And it's, a, it's an incredible story considering what Peter had just done. So now we're just a couple days after the resurrection. That's our best understanding, maybe a few days after. And in John chapter 21, verse 15, we pick up the story here after Peter and the disciples who were fishing came back to shore, had a, a boatload of fish, literally, and they're eating breakfast on the beach. And here Jesus engages them and actually goes on a beachside walk with Peter. In verse 15, we pick it up. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? more than these. But, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, Jesus is actually healing Peter's heart right here. He is, just like Peter denied him three times outside of Caiaphas' house right before the rooster crowed, Jesus is coming back to that moment, and the first time that he could talk to Peter one-on-one -on -one as they're walking down the beach, instead of engaging Peter with the shame and condemnation of where he could have gone, he could have easily said, Peter, can you explain to me why you would have betrayed me at my time of greatest need. Can you help me understand how you promised to be with me? You made me some promises, Peter, and you didn't come through on them. Let's talk about that. Instead of engaging at that level, Jesus just says, do you love me? He doesn't say it once or twice, but three times. And I believe that Jesus is restoring Peter, step by step by step. Peter, you denied me, you denied me, you denied me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? what's he doing? He's reminding him of this very important point, that the love of God, the love of God is actually so big that it can push out of our hearts the fear of man. The fear of man is what made Peter deny Jesus in the courtyard at Caiaphas's home, afraid of what people would say and do and afraid of what it would cost him being afraid of what the future might hold should he be identified as someone who is a follower of Jesus. And here on the beach side, Jesus re-engages him and actually heals his heart and re-enters that room of regret and shame. That room, by the way, of regret and shame has a powerful lock on it. I don't want to go by that too quickly. Listen, if you, if you have ever processed your own room of guilt and shame and regret, you know this, that entering that room or having your shame exposed is like a living hell on earth. This is terrible. We will do anything, 
anything to keep our shame and failures from being exposed to people. This is why it is so shocking when people that we know have failures of some kind because we think they have that shame in their own heart and we hope that it never is a part of ours. We just want it to be locked away. So exposing your own shame and hurt, it is a tough, tough, tough room to enter with great care and compassion and intentionality is when we enter, but only briefly. Very few people, very few people are willing to enter that room and very few people are willing to let others into that room. But that's the room that Jesus wants into in Peter's life. It's the room where he would have locked away his regret and shame and disappointment when he locked eyes with Jesus and let him down and then would have stuffed that in that room and said, oh, if only I could do it differently, I would do it differently again and could live with that shame for the rest of his life. But Jesus here re-enters and three times with the intentionality of a healer, he restores Peter and he heals his heart. Now, how do I know that this worked for Peter? How do I know that the love of God, the love of God is greater than the fear of man? How do I know that the love of God is so powerful that it can displace the fear of man from that inner part of your heart and mind? How do I know that? Not because I'm guessing, but because of Peter's story himself and himself. So the last part of Peter's life that I want to look at with you is in Acts. This is now just a few weeks after he has this encounter with Jesus on the beach, we think maybe about um, you know, 40, 50 days later, um, Peter and his, uh, his, the, the disciples um, were so energized by Jesus' resurrection, so changed that these were no longer the men who were afraid and denied uh, Jesus outside of the religious leaders' homes. In fact, they were healing at the temple no matter what time of day or week it was. They didn't, didn't care. They got themselves in trouble. In Acts chapter 3, they healed someone. The religious leaders didn't like it. So they arrested them, and overnight, then they held them in prison. And the next day, here's what we read happens, when the men were called in front of Annas, Caiaphas, these same leaders who Peter last would have seen inside of the home where he betrayed Jesus, and excuse me, where he denied Jesus. That would have been Peter's last memory of these people. Oh, there's Caiaphas again. There's Annas again. He was in that home. He was the one who was leading the proceedings. And here's Peter himself now standing in front of Caiaphas. Verse 7 says, They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them, By what power or what name do you do this? What a great question. So here's the religious leaders, the powerful people in that day and age, asking the prisoners, Peter and John, give an account of yourself. Peter and John would have known, listen, these are the guys who had Jesus killed. They have the power to take our lives. I mean, there's no future to that, right? I mean, that's the end of it. If we don't answer this right, we're, we're done. I mean, what greater fear is that than the fear of man that could take your life right now? And so here's Peter and John speaking to Caiaphas, the same people who would have taken Jesus' life, essentially. In verse 8, we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth 
whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What an answer. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. And so they go backstage and the leaders are talking about what are they going to do. What are we going to do to these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What an answer. We cannot help it anymore. We're going to do it. You're telling us to stop? By the way, it's not just you who crucified Jesus, but your authority, we are not even going to honor it. You decide what you're going to do. You need to kill us? That's fine. We cannot help it. And after further threats, they let him go. They couldn't decide how to punish him because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man was miraculously healed. He was over 40 years old. See, the love of God casts out fear of man. Putting God, if you will, in, in perspective, understanding the love that he has for us and the way that he comes to reach us into the, the very... Um, inner rooms that we can create of shame and guilt and failure. When Jesus comes and invades that room, that little tomb that we all have in our lives, where we try to bury things that they can go and die, and yet they don't. We wake up in the morning still with regret, still with shame. We live out our days kind of hoping for acceptance, but not ever really being known deeply, maybe the way that we could be, because we have this space in here, this little room that we are ashamed of. We have locked eyes with regret and sin and shame in our past, and we're looking at the grave clothes of Jesus and saying what could be and it's as if Jesus is coming along the the beach to walk with you and walk with me and say love do you love do you love because love can restore your broken heart there is hope and Peter's life is an example of exactly what that looks like love perfect love casts out fear but the truth is love is intimidating isn't it it is it is it is intimidating to accept the love of someone, especially when you know, and I know, the limits of my own life. You know, I, many of you know that I grew up as a kid in Barbados, as a missionary kid, and we would have some uh, missions teams come down to our little island to visit us sometimes, and one was from Lancaster Bible College, and I still remember this for probably the rest of my life, but there was one guy on that team whose name was Rich, and he took an unusual interest in me. Um, in fact, he took such an interest that my um, parents, I remember this, they allowed me to skip school one day just to hang out with the team and what they were doing. And then later on that day, Rich and I had some time to, to play tennis or shoot hoops in the backyard as well. And, and Rich even just gave me, it may only have been a couple of hours of his life, but his interest in me was genuine. But here's, here's what I remember, believe it or not. I remember thinking this, Rich, this is great. 
I didn't say any of this. I couldn't verbalize this at the time. I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. But I remember thinking, um, man, this is cool. I'm so honored that this guy would, would uh, show interest in me, and it really lifted my self-esteem. But I also remember this thinking, if he really knew who I was, I am sure he would not love me like that. If he really knew what I held inside of my little room of regret, when I have locked eyes with my own failures and disappointments, and I've tried to push it into that room, I'm not going to open that room for anybody. I'm not going to open it for Rich. Because if I do, I'm afraid that that love that he has for me is going to go. So I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to be okay to be accepted, even though I'm not going to be really known. I'm going to take the self-esteem lift that it is, but I'm not really going to allow myself to be open fully to this, to this uh, young man. Because the possibility of shame was too great. You know, some psychologists will tell us that all of our relationships operate along a continuum of loneliness on one side and shame on the other, where we have to make a decision. Do I want to be lonely and safe in my relationships, or do I want to expose myself potentially to shame and allow people to really to know who I am? And we will kind of ping pong back and forth in these relationships, sometimes going over here to loneliness when we feel too threatened, and sometimes going allowing ourselves to open up a little bit more to expose more shame potentially when we feel more confident. And we just go back and forth and back and forth, and that often is the way that we relate to God as well, just the way that that is. But here's what I think is so important and powerful as I think about the Easter story and the story of Peter's life, is that the Easter story... And the, the love of God demonstrated on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is, is almost like a, a wrecking ball that is taken to that room that we have fortified, that room of shame and guilt and failure. And it's as if the, the wrecking ball it wrecks that room of regret and disappointment and says, come on, come on, trust me. The love of God is greater, greater than what you hold in that room. I know that exposing your past failures and shame is like a living hell and that you have done all that you can do to keep yourself respectable and honorable and you have tried hard. I know that you have. But yet you're still wondering, what would it actually be like to be known by God and to be accepted by Him in fullness? And this is what Easter is really all about. The invitation of God to you and to me to say, let me in. Trust me. Open your heart here to me. And I love the way Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, a verse that has just um, renewed and wrecked my soul at the same time in the past six weeks, eight weeks. He begins chapter 8 of Romans and he says this way, there is now, listen to this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's now no condemnation. That room of condemnation and guilt and shame, that cannot exist. You don't have to hold on to that anymore. When you have locked eyes with your regret and shame and guilt and pain, you do not need to hold on to that anymore. Not in Jesus. And some of us have, have decided, I want Jesus and my room at the same time. 
I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to be in the church and I want my room at the same time. I don't want to be exposed to shame. I don't want to have my guilt exposed. I want to hold that and have Jesus at the same time. That becomes for, for us, when we do that, we create a, a works-based, a moralistic uh, worldview where we just have to work and work and work to keep our image up and to keep people from knowing us and to keep God from knowing us for who we really are. Because we're afraid of condemnation. We're afraid of man. We're afraid of what people will say to us and do to us. But the gift of God, the gift of God at Easter is a wrecking ball to that room of shame and guilt where we previously built and kept all of the things in our lives that we think are just terrible about who in the world we are. And the story of Peter is a life that gives us an example of someone who is locked into regret, but then someone who gave themselves an opportunity to hope again, staring at the empty tomb and wondering, ah, what is this? And then encountering Jesus who invited him to love again, to see the love of God for what it is, the healing, restorative love of God, and then the courage that it engendered for Peter to realize, I gave Jesus my worst. I gave him my shame and sin and guilt. I rejected him when he needed me, and he loved me anyway. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a shame-free zone. That is the story of Easter. That is the hope of Easter for your heart and for mine. You know, there's a song that I was actually listening to as I was putting some of these thoughts here together. And it's a great song that I wanted to give you a chance to hear as we wrap things up. And uh, it's a, we're going to do this here uh, by video, but it's a song called Death Was Arrested. And the opening part begins this way. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope and no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Watch this video. Let the truth of the words settle in that indeed, yes, death was arrested on this Easter day. Sin was arrested. Regret, shame, all that leads to death was arrested, destroyed. And God's love found a way to let mercy come in. And maybe you're standing at that tomb wondering, could there be something here? Could there be something here? We would love to talk to you, to pray with you, to walk with you, to help your heart heal from the shame and the pain and the hurt of your past. On this Easter Sunday, the wrecking ball of God's love has come, not just to destroy, but to restore our hearts and our hope to him.